Hello, James. Ben, how are you? Good. So uh, we actually uh, saw each other in person last week, uh, but did not have time to uh, actually record a podcast. So <laughs> There's some irony there. It's actually easier to find time to talk to you when you're on the other side of the Pacific Ocean. Yeah. No, it's funny. There was, I just saw some, some, some tweet, someone retweeted or something like, something to the effect of, you know, basically making the point about people are, you know, are still complaining about technology and it's like, you know, we've been progressing, you know, technology as a thing has been progressing human society for like millions of years and people are still complaining about it. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm sure that's an ongoing thing. I, I see that no chance of that changing in the immediate future. Yeah, so so speaking of people complaining, um, so last week was uh, we're we're a little behind. Now. Most people have said their piece, but uh, was obviously was Apple's WWDC event. Um, uh, the general consensus seems to be that you know it was a massive event, hugely successful, all this great news. Um, but you you disagree. Well, yeah, okay, you're really putting it on me now, aren't you? I, I look, I wouldn't say I disagree. I, I I wouldn't say that it wasn't it wasn't positive. It's just this is this is always the case for me with Apple, right? Like at the start when when they've just announced something new, when they've created when they're going into a new category, for me, that's when things are most exciting. They're really breaking new ground. And as as things start to mature, their ability to um, their ability to really to to do things that other people aren't doing, to do things that are really revolutionary. It's not that they can't do them. It's just not as revolutionary as when they start out in a new field. And we've touched on this previously. This notion of uh, looking at the world through the lens of integration and modularity and an integrated organization is able to outperform when performance isn't good enough. And that typically is when a category is created. And as things start to mature, um, modular players do well. And I, I feel like to a certain extent, this was, yeah, they're going to like, I'm not, I'm not getting rid of my iPhone. Don't worry. But um, I feel like to a certain extent, this was a little bit of Apple playing catch up with things like the extensions, things like the keyboards, and these are going to be great. And again, I'm going to, I love my iPhone. I'm, I'm, I wasn't thinking about getting an Android device because of it, uh, because it like the iPhone lacked these features and I'm looking forward to getting them, but it's not, I don't know. It's not revolutionary. Like that's, that's just my take on it. Well, I mean, you you realize you you kind of sound like a a ever shallow member of the you know of the press at large that's always expecting a a new iPhone or a new iDevice like every other year, and if it's not, it's a it's a ma- it's a massive failure. Ah, uh, I, I like I again to <laughs> to be fair, I never said it was a massive failure. I think these um I think these uh, enhancements are actually going to be pretty cool. Like I uh, like the. It, it, it's a complete no-brainer for Apple to take advantage of the fact that if you own multiple Apple devices, that you can you can um, hand off things to them. Like that's just a complete no-brainer. Like I, I love that idea. Um, similarly, again, the extensions thing is is a no-brainer. Like there there, there have been like when, once you start thinking about apps talking to apps, stuff can get really kind of interesting. Um, and also, the another one of these no-brainers is the uh, the the stuff they're doing around health, which I think is is also pretty cool. But it's just I don't know. Like this isn't the same degree of excitement that I had when 
we went from an iPhone 3GS to an iPhone 4 and they were fixing all these things that were driving me crazy. These are these are nice enhancements and I'm looking forward to getting them. Do I uh, uh, do I think they're revolutionary? Hmm, no. Uh, is that should that be the expectation? No. Like uh, you're right. Like these these things are like these big things are lumpy. They take time to work out. I mean, like everybody knows how long some of these like the iPhone or the iPad or OS 10 on Intel, all these things were running in the labs before they released. They take time. So not every one of these keynotes is going to be some crazy new revolutionary product. So um, I think I think the I think we've had this discussion before, but I think the um you know the leaving aside the relative excitement or whatever, mm-hmm. um I, I think the the issue is not that Apple is is not choosing to do a new device, or that they're, or that they're working hard on something. I don't think there is a exciting new device to be had. I mean, even if the iWatch comes out, I mean, it's it's not it's going to be, you know, it's going to it's not going to be relative to the, to the iPhone that that big of a deal. I mean, so so I guess that's the question. Really? If an if an iWatch came out, would that would that excite you? Uh so it depends. Um, I, I the problem is I. <laughs> To a certain extent, I I agree with what Jobs always kind of, uh, in, to a greater or lesser extent, said around like people don't know what they want around stuff like this until you show it to them, and that's one of the things that that I mean. I remember when the first iPhone came out, I had been using this Nokia device that had this basic browser in it, and it drove me crazy. I remember landing in an airport once haven't hadn't booked accommodation and I was trying to get to one of the websites to like uh, hotwire or something to book a place to stay that night and I couldn't do it and I was like my gosh why can't I just have my, why can't my phone do a browser properly like that pain point had been there and I don't know I, my suspicion is that there are going to be things that they do with a watch that are going to be that are going to be like that right, it's going to no, be more this, than a pebble but that's but don't you hear what you're saying you 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 actually were articulating very specific use cases for an iPhone before an iPhone came out. Uh, Right. And you just said, I'm sure for an iWatch it was something similar, but allegedly the iWatch is coming very soon, if not this year, the next year. And Mm -hmm. uh, you were were just much more articulate about the way you felt about the upcoming iPhone before it came out than you were with the iWatch. What I mean is like you're saying, oh, Apple, people don't know what they want until they want it. Mm. Well, actually, your example suggested you kind of had an inkling of what you wanted before you wanted it. That's true, and and that's true. Though hindsight is twenty twenty, and looking back right now, it's easy for me to draw the line between the two things. No, but I actually, I think you're, I think you're right though, because that that, I I was going to make that point, and you happily made it for me. Like the idea of an iPhone, the implementation was very surprising, right? No keys and, and you know all touch. But the idea of what an iPhone might be and what need it might fill was was readily apparent, I think, to 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 everyone at that time. Like no everyone knew that there was something that was gonna happen with hmm. phones. Right. Um, you know, and so whereas with whereas with the whereas with the watch or and whatever it might be, I mean to me, um again, I apologize for listeners if we're if we're retouching the ground, but I mean the the what excites me about a and this is why this is where I think you're 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 being too short sighted. What mm. excites me about a watch 
is I can see a future where uh, my my identity and my computing environment, all that is on my is on my wrist. And I walk up to my desk and it's projected onto the desk in a contextually appropriate environment and I can work. And I go and I pull out a phone or a tablet and it's it's and it's projects onto there a contextually appropriate, whatever it might be, or I go to the car, like CarPlay. Now the problem is this is this is very far away, right? There's just it's and it's very far away, not for lack of vision, but because the technology isn't there, the battery life isn't there, the 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 power isn't there, like all this this miniaturization isn't there. There's a long ways to go, and so and so that that's that's the issue of there not being anything new and exciting is that though all the right pieces aren't yet in place and that's not an apple not wanting to do anything that's just a reality so so if you think about that though if you step back and say okay what's happening now well you think about something like continuity like now you can do something on your phone it can seamlessly transfer to your computer now you're working in your computer like that's actually echoes of the vision that i just painted Right, right, and like just without the watch. <laughs> well, no, I know, but like, but the the whole point is you don't get anywhere in like the whole idea of a revolutionary object is is itself, I think, um, a mis a misunderstanding of what's going on. Like, if you want to understand the iPhone, you actually have to go back to the 1980s when Next was when Next was started. And when they kind of put together the fundamental architecture of that operating system and and OpenStep and uh, you know the 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 basically the beginning of, of Coco, like all that all the way through the '90s when when Apple bought them, it was integrated with with with, with you know became OS X through the iPod, through iTunes, through the iTunes Store. Without all of those pieces that were developed over literally decades. The iPhone would not have been revolutionary. So you, if you look at the iPhone as an object, yes, it was revolutionary. But, but if you look at it, all that it entailed and all its pieces, it was very evolutionary. I, I'm not. I, I mean, I'm not going to disagree with that. I, th I think that a lot of these devices end up being informed quite a bit by their precursors. And well, no, it, it not it's not just informed though, is that, sorry, I'm, I'm ranting now, but it's, it's that the, the pieces are there. And so this is why, this is why I, I just, and I kind of set you up, sorry. Um, but this is why <laughs> I disagree okay. with you about, <laughs> about last week, because what there were so many, um, there were two, there were a few really interesting things about, about the keynote, just looking at a very big picture. Mm. One, we saw the, the, culmination of things that have been work been going on for for years like this swift language was you know started in, in 2010 lots of this other stuff like some of the extension stuff like the way extensions work and um and it's actually it's pretty broad the whole category like extensions and the sheets are part of it the fact that you can now use the the main safari nitro javascript engine is actually a part of the same sort of framework like this this framework and the way that apps can sandbox apps can can work together that architecture has been being developed within iOS actually for several generations of the OS like it's not it's not like they just suddenly came up with it in the last you uh, know, nine, I, nine, look, months. no I know I, I'm pretty sure the choir I'm pretty sure the choir I'm so yeah but so there's that that we see the culmination but also I feel we see we see the you know the hints of what might coming with things like continuity and stuff like that and and if you take my view that mm. the next quote-unquote revolutionary f 
physical hardware product is not possible now. And it's not possible not because Apple's not capable and they're not working hard enough. It's not possible because the technology isn't there yet. What And so that tempers my expectations to start out with. And but more broadly, it's heartening to see things in progress that whenever that that whenever the hardware and the technological parts are ready, all the other parts will be ready as well. So it can mm-hmm. truly be something, you know, something incredible. And when you put it like that, when you lay it out as a as as the foundation for being able to do something like that, then yeah, I I I, I would you probably do get me a little bit more excited. I mean, I don't know. Maybe, again, this may just be my my relative contentment with the quality of the devices that I have right now. And when I get like that, I just pay less attention. Like, yeah. And I and again, it's just the thing when performance starts to get good enough. Now, there was once upon a time I would say I was much. I would geek out about new stuff much more. I would be like sitting up in Australia at 4 a.m. to watch keynotes. <laughs> and my propensity to do that has dropped a little bit more recently. For sure. It, it's it's when the new stuff comes out that I start to get really excited. Now, maybe I'm being um, maybe I'm being unfair and not giving them enough credit to, to for some of what they've released. And like, again, the way you describe it as a foundation for some of what's to come, that, yeah, I, I can see that. Maybe, maybe I'm being a little unfair on them. So I think one other thing that's interesting um, that, that I would actually, I would love to to chat with you quick about, and we, we don't need to spend too much time on Apple, but um, uh, th- so we never, we, we actually first broached the idea of, of doing this podcast. Um, I think it was like the week or two weeks after I had written um, what Clay Christensen got wrong. And you were you were very um, perturbed um, in some respects, and we said, "Oh, let's not let's not talk about it now. Let's talk about it on a podcast." Um, so you know, so yes, yeah, so just uh, you've stated it, but I'll say it again. The idea is uh, when a market is new, all of the solutions are not none of them are good enough, um, but an integrated solution is is, and so winning products are primarily picked based on their their features, like the ones that best satisfy the needs. And price is more of a secondary concern because they all suck. So you might as well get the one that, that is closest to, to being functional. And the integrated solution will be will be better. It'll be more expensive, but it'll be better. Over time, um, as both become good enough, then price becomes the dominant reason to choose. And then the modulated solution wins. And the integrated solution is too expensive. It, it has features that, pe- that you don't care about. And and ultimately just kind of loses its market from the bottom. Um, fair, fair summary. Yeah. So so it, there's a there's a graph that Clay would draw, and it would have um, it would have uh, the performance along the y-axis and time over the left axis. Yeah. yeah. We'll, we'll, we'll put, I mean, yeah. not to cut you off. We'll put the link. I mean, I've written about this a million times. You have as well. Yeah. We'll put links right. in the show notes um, of sure. the graphs. And the, and. Um, so anyhow, but the, the point is, is one of my contentions in the article, and I felt yeah. this kind of came through in, in the keynote as well, is that uh, the problem is that, uh, and this is kind of like so qu- classic kind of you know, business one hundred and one, is that uh, the problem with integration is you lose efficiencies. Uh, or like, at, it's better to have each level of the stack like optimizing based on what it does best. There, uh, yeah, there being competition, a, yeah. 
Right. Um, it depends whether you're trying to optimize, like whether you're at a point where it's best to have control of the full stack. So you can you don't know where the interdependencies are, but once those have been figured out, it's better to break it apart and let everybody figure their own piece of this. Right. Exactly. Out. And then like so, one they can specialize, and two there's competition, so they'll be spurred to to make it better. Whereas if you do it all right. yourself, and this and it's funny because this is actually um, I, I I keep on meaning to write about why Apple's cloud services tend to suck, but one mm-hmm. of the reasons is that because there is no profit motive for their cloud services. They're there to support the other products. Like that's that's a structural problem that tons of research has shown will result in subpar products. And yeah. and you see that that's that's a good example of of integration not just being a a cost losing issue, but actually being a quality losing issue because you don't have the right the right incentives to to make something great. Right. I, I mean, I, I agree with that. There was something really interesting I read recently on how how the iTunes guys didn't even like log in to look at Spotify. They just just you know the priority wasn't creating a great service. The priority was like Ping was created not to create a great social network, but rather to find ways of getting people to buy more tracks on iTunes. And you know, like that kind of thing. That kind of thing that that speaks to getting the priorities wrong, I think. Right, which and so yeah, that's always gonna, and so that's that's just an implicit prog- problem in any sort of integrated solution is that there are parts mm. of the stack that don't have the right incentives, and right. it's not that people are like it's not that people are bad. It's just that people respond to incentives, and if there isn't a profit incentive, if there isn't a competition incentive, then you lose you lose an edge. So yeah. it's it, this is interesting because typically, I mean, one of the things that that Jobs said when he came back was he switched it away from from you know like his his criticism of Scully was he switched it from um, products through to profit. Um, and I wrote about this in Steve Jobs solved the innovator's dilemma, but Jobs switched it back away from profit to to creating great products. And what's interesting is that for some reason, or I, I think we're starting to dig into the reason that 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 hasn't quite dug into some of the cloud services inside of um, inside of Apple, which is interesting. Yeah, well, I mean, there are there are other reasons. Like, I think Apple culturally, um, you yeah. know, they're all about the perfect product, and that just right. doesn't work for the cloud, right? Cloud is right. about getting it out there and iterating. Yeah. Um, anyhow, I, I want to say that I'm gonna write about sometime. We could talk about Apple's cloud issues for eight for ages. <laughs> but um, one of my contentions is that. Uh, modularization carries a user experience cost um in that uh yes from it you can you can have a technical breakpoint and stuff in you know specifications where things work together um mm-hmm. but you can never fully specify in a document or any sort of means a user experience sort of like relationship and right. so if it's underneath the covers like it's something like if you have a beige box and you have a processor and a motherboard and memory like that yes that you can totally separate that out but as soon as you're getting into the actual um things like the the touch screen and the device and and this and the system on a chip and the software and all that like once you once it's getting yeah. that tight you're, you're you are giving something up um, yeah you absolutely are but i mean so on the and on that y-axis there's a there's a the categorization is is performance and that will, some people will find that horrifically vague but it's basically the ability of the product to do the job that the consumer is hiring it to do, and user experience is one part of the job. Um, right, as, but the dif- but the difference is is I don't think you can overshoot user experience. 
Like, yeah. can a user experience ever be like too, you, you too can, good? You, you can, there are lots of things you can never overshoot on. It's just in relationship to um, what most people need and what they're willing to pay for. And so if you're able to offer a product that, that does most of these things as well as um, your product that's overshooting but is able to do so at a fraction of the cost, well, people will be willing. I mean, people will be willing to like give up. This is the thing. So sitting behind that graph that Clay does, there's, there's like a bell curve of consumers. And so at some end, there are people who are extremely demanding. And at the other end, there are people who are not demanding at all in terms of the performance they require. No, of course, so, I mean, which is why like, you know, the, the, app, you know, the phone, the iPhone will at most have like 20% of, of the gold market. And that, that's a pretty aggressive number. Like that, that's, a, that's a billion phones. Um, no, so anyhow, we're... we're, we're um, we we could we could and should talk about this for for an entire episode. Um, the 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 point I wanted to make though was what I th- what I thought was interesting about WWC and and a lot of the announcements they made was um, just kind of feature after feature and even things like like Swift um, really leveraged and were built upon like the tight integration, like yeah. And- and, and- and that's where they should focus. That's, I mean, increasingly as performance, increasingly as performance of the products as separate devices um, starts to increase, then one of the ways that they can fight back is to change people's definition around the job to be something that it's not just a phone and a computer, but an integrated, like an integrated computing environment. And if they can, if they can change the game like that, then they reset the people's definitions of performance. So suddenly I'm not just looking for how well my phone works or how well my computer works. I'm looking at how well all these all these devices start to work together. Like that becomes the that becomes the new basis on which performance is made. Like the underlying job hasn't changed, but like the way in which people expect it to be done begins to evolve and if they can i mean and that's their edge like the fact that they're integrated the fact that they have um the ability to they they have all those pieces under their control that's like that that's the axis along which apple can fight and win because no one else has that that's interesting i I was um so if you look at your kind of like computing existence as a whole apple can integrate the phone and the tablet and the and the computer um, like if you have an Android phone and a Windows PC, like they're not going to be very integrated. Well, especially not at first. At least not until all the <laughs> at least cloud not services until, and stuff. Yeah. Well, I was going to be a little bit more cheeky and say at least not until Apple shows them how it's done. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah. Well, let's put it this way: Google and Microsoft aren't going to be collaborating on anything any, anytime soon. Um, well, it's interesting because uh, we're, we're we're totally off track now. But Computex was the same week as WWDC, and it was so striking just to see like. The, the contrast where, you know, Apple's kind of, um, you know, Apple's like ideal device, like the iPad, right? It's like a piece of glass mm. and, and it's fully integrated and the main, and like it becomes whatever app you run on it, right? That, that's where, right. that's where you can, that's where there's room to like compete, like where Apple gives spaces to, to app developers. Um, whereas a Computex, uh, the reality is, is well, everyone uses the same OS, they're, they're all use Windows. And honestly, most people use the same applications, meaning they all use a browser. That's what PCs are mainly used for. And so, that, like, all these hardware guys are left to, like, 
try to differentiate based on like hardware specs. But like we've 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 settled it, right? A laptop is an ideal form factor for a computer. A black piece of glass is an ideal form factor for a phone. And like, and so you just get these absurd sort of things because like just the the whole kind of like the whole plane of competition and plane of difference differentiation has just shifted shifted totally. And and the entire structure of the industry is kind of like not set up to to handle that at all. Yeah, it's I mean, it's not I mean, <laughs> it's never fun being um, set up incorrectly when the basis of competition changes, because all the profits flow from one part of the value chain and start collecting somewhere else. And, you know, like, like, you know, it wasn't so long ago that that it wasn't such a bad place to be in the PC industry. Now, I imagine it would be pretty hellish. Yeah, that's not great. Um Okay, well, I think uh, hopefully I've somewhat convinced you that that most of what happened last week was good. Oh, I did have I did have one more thing I wanted to run by you. We should we should just to table we should table that that conversation about that article about um, like why why you think Clay Christensen is wrong. I think it's yeah. an interesting conversation, but let's come back to it. No, I did have one more thing I wanted to run mm, by you. Hit me. Um, uh, beats. Uh, yeah. So ah, yeah. So the deal officially closed. Um, we had a discussion about it. You you talked mm. about being, you know, you were. Um, I think we both had concerns. I think you probably more than more than I did. Mm. Um, but I was thinking, if you if you're if you're, you know, what what was, you know, uh, what is the the prescribed response to to uh, disruption? Uh, a very good question. Uh, Clay would say, if he was here, I'm pretty confident. I shouldn't put words in his mouth. I'm pretty confident that he would say that the way to deal with disruption is to set up an independent business unit that has a different um, set of priorities in terms of... Uh, so we talked briefly in one of the previous podcasts about the RPP model, resources, processes, priorities. And that's the way in which you can basically break down all the various components inside a company. And the most important thing is to change the nature of the priorities. So when you get to be a big organization um, with high profit margins, going after low-end opportunities seem very unattractive because your cost structure determines what, what's attractive and what's not. And so the way to deal with disruption is to set up a little startup somewhere out of reach where they can independently come up, independently figure out how to deal with um whatever the disruption is with a very different cost structure and without fiddling from the parent company. So um, just to refresh. I think I know where you're going. Yeah, so, <laughs> so, um, so what is Apple doing with Beats? They're keeping it separate, I hear. Uh, what is Beats' priority and business model? Yeah. Or Beats so, Music anyway. So I, I think what? I think they paid, I think Apple paid mostly, like in terms of what they probably had to pay for, they probably paid more for hardware, but I think, like as I've reflected more on this, I think what they ended up buying was not that. Maybe they got that. Maybe the headphones were nice to have. Maybe that's the cool part, and they're playing with that that headphone standard, which I, I don't know. I'm I always get skeptical when Apple starts playing with stuff like that. <laughs> yeah, with, with with specialized chords. Yes. Uh, yeah. Like. <laughs> yeah. I, I imagine they have a department of special chords in there somewhere. <laughs> anyway. Um, but no, I, I think they bought it for the music service. Well, I think, well, the big thing too, is the music service is like, what's everyone saying? Oh, Apple's going to get disrupted by the services model, horizontal, mm -hmm. blah, blah, blah. Like they're a hardware company. Um, and like, and, and that's always been the big thing, right? Is that Apple services, we just talked about it, exist to sell hardware. Right. Um, which is not, yeah. I mean, 
This is, it blows my mind, really. It blows my mind why they have not put iMessage on Android because you... Like it, it anyway. It's another conversation. No, well, well, well. Let's let's stick with Beats for a moment. So Beats Music uh, will remain on Android um, and and Windows Phone uh, for 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 all three of you out there. Um, uh, people are gonna hate me for that. I'm sorry. I have, I have Microsoft <laughs> friends. Um, so it's gonna stay on on Android and Windows Phone. Uh, it's gonna be operated as as a separate entity. Uh, mm. It would be interesting to see if they report out a separate a separate PNL item, um, yeah. But basically, like they are doing to a T what the sort of prescribed response should be. Like there, it's a different business model. It's being kept separate. Uh, it's totally different margins, totally different cost structure. Um, does that change your opinion of of the of the acquisition? Uh, so it the the yes, I mean the 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 rationale is important and so it's again like some some degree of insight into why these decisions are being made and what they're hoping to achieve with it would obviously be very helpful but i i think the question you've asked is a really good question um and yes like this is a this is a way of dealing with this is this is the way of dealing with disruption but what i mean one one thing I will say, and maybe this doesn't necessarily, because we've already talked a little bit about how Apple and services isn't <laughs> isn't always a slam dunk. One of the things that has been impressive about this company is that they've been able to disrupt themselves, at least on the hardware side, without having to do that. And it's kind of interesting that they feel the need when, to try when, and do when it has Apple disrupted themselves. To me, well, this is the biggest myth in like disruption theory that Apple has disrupted themselves. So, so I remember reading an earnings call when um, an analyst asked whether the iPad was um, cannibalizing sales of MacBooks, and and it, this was this was at a point where it was becoming clear that it wasn't going to be a big issue. But well, no, actually, I'm not sure. It wasn't no. entirely clear whether it was going to be a big issue or not. And Tim Cook was like, "Look." Maybe it will, maybe it won't. So far, we haven't seen um, a large amount of cannibalization. But if we don't do it, then somebody else will. So here's, here's even putting put, put, putting that aside, they didn't know for sure one way or another. They, it's entirely possible that they could have released the iPad and it could have just completely completely eaten up a whole bunch of MacBook sales. Like it could have been a really high cannibalization number. So, but and this they is fundamentally anyway. unimpressive. At even when the iPad w- was released, the Mac was already down to like thirty percent or less of Apple's total revenue. They didn't have much to lose relative to someone like Microsoft. Number one, number two, the profit margins on iPad have always been bigger than that on the Mac. Like, oh, if only we could all disrupt ourselves by introducing a higher margin product with a bigger addressable market. I mean, like my 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 whole but, thing so, with so like, maybe my whole thing, my whole maybe, thing but, with. My whole thing yeah. with, with the Apple being praised for disrupting themselves, and I've written similar things. Like I wrote a piece about about, about the the you know the iPod, like a research paper way back way back in the day, which I think where we kind of first indirectly met. Um, you know, praising them for that. But at, in a big picture, like I don't think they've ever been in a position where they had a lot to lose. One and number two, mm-hmm. like they've gone from 
high margin product to higher margin product, like in these transitions, right? Did the iPhone disrupt the iPod? I don't think so. It it, it subsumed the iPod. It it, ob- it, it obsoleted say, the so, iPod. But, but you're you're looking at it from a, a rational, uh, ho- holistic. Like I'm sitting on top of this organization and I have complete control of it. Like when the iPad came out or when the iPhone was released, there was a division inside of Apple that was selling iPods and someone was in charge of it and they were making lots and lots of money on it. And that's the same with the Mac, right? Like the Mac was making a lot of money and this iPad was coming out and hmm, this is this could this could threaten the core. Like and and here's the thing, right? Like in most other organizations, the person responsible for the iPod or the person responsible for the Mac would have responsibility for a profit and loss. And if there was a threat ex- internally that that person could head off at the pass by saying, actually, we're going to do whatever we can to make sure this iPad doesn't come out so we don't have uh, my pro- my profit and loss, which I'm responsible for, threatened, then a lot of other organizations have done it. I mean, so like co- okay, that's fine. I, I, I will grant. Sorry, I'm feeling very testy today. I keep interrupting. Yeah, you, too much coffee. Yeah, I did. Or not enough sleep, yeah. or both. So, so okay, that that's that's fine. I, I will I will <sighs> grant you that. Wh- Thank wh- you, Ben. Where so I generous. <laughs> where I see disruption being so like such a powerful force is when like. There's there's actually not nothing you can do about it. So if you take Windows at Microsoft, where you you dominate the market, it's like thirty to forty percent of your of your of your revenue. It's fifty percent of your profit. You have ninety five percent profit margins. Like in that case, it doesn't matter who's making the decision. In fact, if you're a CEO, it's even more difficult to make the decision if you're some like VP, like to say, oh, we're gonna move to a services model where our services are going to be first rate on Macs and on iOS and on Android. Like, yes, that's what Windows or Microsoft as a company needs to do, and they're kind of slowly but surely going in that direction finally. But like that, that is a, it's not just a sort of like an incentive problem. It's a, you're going mm. to get killed on your balance sheet problem. Like Apple right. may, Apple maybe by their original structure avoided the incentive problem. That's great. But they were blessed in that they never had the like, we're going to destroy our balance sheet issue. And that's what makes disruption so difficult. Yeah. It's not. Right. It, I mean, and, and some of these, some of these, um, I mean, some of the, the context matters, right? And some of it is more insidious than others. And yeah, sure. I, then if you're able to get everyone who's buying an iPod to switch over to an iPhone, that's not such a bad problem. But again, like at its peak, how how many billions of dollars was the iPod business worth? Like I, I can't, it was many billions of dollars. And I, I just try and think about an organization that, that basically loses um, a business that's that big and it doesn't skip a beat. It's just, it's it's rare. I mean that that I, know, that, but I, I don't think the thing is though. I mean, it, it is rare, and like, so credit where credits due. I don't think the iPhone disrupted the iPad, the iPod though. The 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 iPhone consumed the iPod, right? The iPod is still exists. It's just an app on the iPhone now. And whereas if you're moving from just we'll go back to Beats Music, right? If if if, if let's say let's say we'll like this is one of the there's a class of Apple critics that say, oh, that's mm-hmm. fine, Apple is doing well, but in the long run, 
uh, hardware will be commoditized. They will not be able to stay in the profit margins. They will have to move to a services model. Let's, let's say they are right. Like, and in the long run, Apple will need to offer services across a range of devices and make, make $10 per user per year with a whole bunch more users as mm. opposed to right now making a few hundred dollars per user across a much smaller range of users. Mm. Like that is a much more dramatic shift than moving from we're going to make a few hundred dollars per user by selling one device to we're going to make a few hundred dollars per user by selling a different device. Yeah, so this is true. And this comes back to a point that you made earlier, though, incentives matter. And if you've managed to create an organization where people are prioritized around making great products as opposed to making like running their own little profit and loss fiefdom, then the shift is easier to make, A. And B, uh, the, the, when, you're thinking through, when you're thinking through scenarios like this, the, the fallacy that most people make and the fallacy that a lot of investors make is to assume that the choice is to continue doing what we've done forever or to move to a less profitable world where we still have a place. That's what most people think their choices are when a shift takes place like what you described for Microsoft. What the real choice is, is we either, we either shift to a world that's less profitable, but we find our place into it, find our place in it, or we face extinction. And given those two choices, shifting to the less profitable place is always the preferable alternative. Now, it's easy for me to say, and it's easy. It's when, when you lay it out, like in the case of Microsoft or in the case of uh, Netflix and Blockbuster, it's easy for people to understand it. Obviously, when you're at the helm of an organization and you're facing investor pressure to meet numbers every quarter, then it becomes it becomes a it's a more difficult thing. But then, right. no, then, I, I, so I think we're ultimately saying the same thing. Like right. the, the, where disruption is truly challenging is when you have to change your business model. Like Apple's never had to change their business model, whereas Microsoft is in many ways does need to change their business. Well, model. Well, that's true. But if my if my <laughs> this is true. If, but at the same at the same time, I think Microsoft saw the future on mobile devices. Uh, just about the same time as Apple did, the difference was Apple was able to bring itself to do something about it and take out and, and create a device that that may or may not have threatened its existing desktop product. Microsoft wasn't able to do it, or it tried to do it. It tried to jam the same. It tried to jam a smaller version of Windows in rather than doing what Apple did, which was rethinking the way the whole thing worked. Yeah, well, that, to me, that's that was. Microsoft saw mobile. I say Microsoft missed mobile. Is oh, they is saw it. it. They just didn't. They didn't right. execute. It, it was an right. It was an execution problem, right? Like I think there's different problems, right? There's a vision problem. There's an right. execution problem. There's a business model problem, and and it's easy to get those those all mixed up. Um, so anyhow, we we got we got far afield. But the point is, I, th I think that. I have I have no idea. Going back to Beats, I have no idea how much this idea of like having a separate business unit and like a different business model, um, if this was even if this is kind of an accident or if it was explicit on purpose. But I think it is an interesting angle that. Um, yeah, totally. And, and and I mean, I've I've heard that Clay's stuff is pretty popular inside of Apple, so it's certainly a possibility. Well, I mean, to be honest, Clay's stuff is popular inside of Microsoft too. I mean, it's yeah. <laughs> yeah, but they have an execution problem. Well, they, it, I'm, it's I'm joking. No, I'm they jo do. They do have an execution problem. But like to me, this, I, 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 honestly, I'm very skeptical of 
of Quay's or anybody's solution to disruption. Um, to me, disruption, like true disruption, is a fundamental business model problem. And I, I, like, I, I think it's a lot. So you don't, you don't think it's possible. You don't think it's think. possible then? I think that if, if, if it were true, to take Apple as an example, if it were true that it became impossible to make profit on hardware and the only way to, to survive would be to be like Xiaomi and like, and we're going to sell hardware at cost and make the profit up on services, Apple would be doomed. Like, and they mm. wouldn't be doomed because they are bad or they'd suddenly get bad execution or they would turn stupid. They'd get doomed because the industry shifted and they were they were stuck with an old model. Like that's what happened to Microsoft. It's not um, my, there, there's tons of problems with Microsoft, but even if my, Microsoft was executing perfectly, um, their entire business was built on a model where they were getting ninety five percent margins on every PC sold, and and once that went away, or we moved to this new world where there is no, like, there's no space for an operating system line item when it comes to mobile, right? Like, they, you can't sell a license. Like, they, their entire business model is extinct. And, and, like, it wouldn't matter how well they executed. Yeah, I, 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 I mean, it's if it, if it were easy, then it wouldn't happen so often, and that's part of the insidiousness of the problem that it is that is so difficult to deal with because the things that make sense don't make sense. You know, like that's that's like one of the nastiest riddles in business that there are, that there is. Right? It's hard to deal with, but I I I mean, unless you think it's an impossible problem to deal with, I I think to my mind. Uh, Clay's solution of creating something separate makes a lot of sense because it's something separate that knocks you off in the that will knock you off. So if if someone else is going to come and knock you off, you might as well create something, um, give the resources um, to something to do it to yourself rather than let someone else do it for you. So here's a question from a societal. We're, we're, sorry, we're totally off the road. This is like the longest. Like we're just going to cover this real quick segment ever. Um, <laughs> from a from a societal perspective, yeah, is like, should we really endorse, you know, Christensen's approach? Like, Ooh. wouldn't we be better if the... This is pick on clay day for you, is it? Well, no, wouldn't it be better from a societal perspective if the investment that went to this new division and is almost certainly going to be invested less at a less than kind of optimal way, if that went to a startup that is from day one structured and focused around that job to be done like aren't I, they going to use the money more efficiently which will better for society as a whole well i mean i i feel like that's not a that's not a question that society itself should be dealing with that's a question for for shareholders and management yes. that being said I, I i mean i think i remember when <laughs> I, I remember when the iphone first came out and there was a there was an executive inside of uh, the largest telco in australia called telstra and I remember reading an interview with him and he's like, there's this saying we have in Australia called stick to your knitting, which basically means stick to what you should do. And I remember reading this executive being interviewed. I'll, I'll have to try and dig it up and see if I can find the quote. But he's like, yeah, you know, I think Apple should just stick to its knitting. It does computers. It doesn't do phones. But it did I, stick to its knitting. Yeah, well, I mean, that's the thing, right? It's 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 easy to say that hindsight 2020 that it's that's exactly what it's good at and i think when organizations do this successfully everyone loves them i think when they they try and do it and they fail um 
then people are like, well, you should have just returned the money to shareholders. I, I don't have a I don't have a strong point of view, but I think what's interesting about uh, what's interesting about a lot of um, the research that that Clay has done and the way he teaches his class is he thinks about it not from the perspective of shareholders, but from the perspective of management. He doesn't say. I don't think he would necessarily have a point of view on whether this is what you should do. I think he's like, well, guys, if you're going to go out there and you're going to look for new growth businesses, which is ultimately the role of a manager inside an organization, like getting back to Drucker, the purpose of business is to create a customer. Here are some tools to think about doing it. Um, I think it's a it's a it's a context specific question. I don't think. Um, I don't think legacy or incumbent organizations on principle should be prohibited from doing it. But I also don't think that every legacy or incumbent organization should always be going out looking for new things. It's just a case of, well, it kind of depends, right? Yeah. All right, well, speaking of shareholders, um, uh, you wrote a piece uh, in, in HBR, uh, which we'll put in the notes. Um, we, we hinted at it last week, but about Flash Boys, the, the yeah. new Michael Lewis book. Right, it's it's well, an interesting yeah, book. Yeah, well, yeah. Tell us, give it, give it an overview of the book in case people. Yeah, read so it or so if you haven't read it, uh, Lewis Lewis is famous for um, Lewis is famous for for doing <laughs> for writing about. Um, I think it's liars poker. Um, uh, he basically digging into the finance industry, into the investment banking places, and this book is all about high frequency trading. And basically, uh, he he digs in and and explains how it works. Um, how these firms are set up to uh, basically uh, optimize around speed. They don't necessarily have any, they're not investing for anything other than the fact that they're able to react to market news faster than all other players. So it's it's almost like they have insider information because their computers operate there. They've they've done all kinds of crazy things like dig fiber optic cables through mountains. What you name it, they've done it. They've put computers in server rooms. They all these crazy tactics to get just milliseconds of speed. Wait, a computer what, in a server room? Well, they they put it inside. <laughs> yes, <laughs> that's a good point. They put it inside the exchanges, so they take computers. Yeah, no, I know. I, I'm just a hard time. Co- Sorry. Yeah, no, please. They co-locate anyway. All these crazy tactics to uh, to get tiny edges of a, of a second, and because there are all these different exchanges, what they do is that they see you trying to buy or sell something on one exchange, and they can get to another exchange faster than you can. So they they effectively go out. They if say you're trying to buy a stock at a certain price and they can see a differential they take advantage of the differential between the different exchanges they see you buying it they can see it slightly lower somewhere else and before the exchange itself can react and average out the price there's like a mechanism across all the exchanges that's supposed to average out the price but before that's even able to happen they go off to another exchange and they they sell you the stock having bought it at a lower price because the bid your bid has to or your your ask has to come through um at a at a certain exchange and they can get to the other exchanges faster than all the exchanges can talk to each other. So effectively, it's like a tax on the stock market. Uh, Every time you trade, these guys aren't actually buying or holding stock for any period of time. They're just seeing an order come in. They're figuring out who it's from. They're figuring out how big it's likely to be. All these ridiculous little, all these ridiculous things like this. And then they just, it's effectively, they don't hold it for any period of time longer than fractions of a second and they just move it over. And it's effectively taxing everyone who's 
who's uh, transacting on these exchanges by tiny fractions of a cent. But obviously, right, because for the this, number so, of- so, so someone bought it on one exchange at $42, at 42.08. Right. And so that, well, what, it, they will yeah. they will their profit is that 0.02 that they will yeah. basically they'll, they'll capture the spread um before right. it evens out. And and where they're they're quote unquote taxing the exchange is someone ought to have been able to also buy it at 4208 or 4209, right. but now it's 4210. Um right. and, and, and the exchanges are in on it too, uh, which is also kind of troubling because the exchanges make money on volume and they love having all these high frequency traders there so it's it's like there's this perverse incentive set up to um perverse incentive set up to kind of screw regular investors because the high frequency traders get in tax and the the exchanges love it because it means transaction volumes going up so they're making more money that all being said what i thought was interesting right i mean honestly like it, it's we're taxing fractions of a cent is it really that right that big well it probably adds up to billions of dollars but in terms of in terms of building companies, in terms of making things that matter, like I just it feels to me like this is all a little bit of a sideshow. Yeah, you know, that's the word I was going to use. Like it sounds like okay, I don't know. My 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 feeling is like like Lewis wants us to get all upset and worked up about about something that one is totally legal, just to be clear. Yeah. Um, and two, um, in the grand scheme of things. Uh, of all the things we worked up about just really isn't that big of a deal. Right. I mean, it, yeah, I, I, I agree with that assessment. I, again, like I think a lot of the people who are listening to this and certainly my interests and your interests, they're, they're in building real things and people who build real things, deliver real services. No one inside one of these big firms is thinking, oh gosh, what are the high frequency traders going to do about this? Like that, that, that they they are not trading based on fundamentals of the stock. They're trading based exclusively on speed. So in terms of the impact that this has in the real world, yes, there's like a billion dollar tax on transacting on the exchange. But I mean, exchanges have always done this. There's always been a middleman taking his cut. All that's changed is right now, it happens to be a bunch of oftentimes Russian or Eastern European programmers. <laughs> well, apparently that because of they, they learnt on very restricted uh, hardware in the Soviet Union. So they learnt how to write things very efficiently, which lends themselves very well to speed. But it's, oh, now, it's, now it's just a bunch of... Russian or Eastern European programmers that are the the world's new middlemen in terms of exchanges. I just feel like, I don't know, in terms of it gets a lot of publicity. I just don't think, I don't think it's worth as much attention as as it's being given right now. Oh. So, um, so, but that, but that actually wasn't your wasn't right. your ultimate conclusion. It, which is also interesting, and we talked about this. Well, so, yeah, um, so just put this in context here. So, um, so we talked a, a second ago. You know, one of the challenges of someone responding to disruption is they face right. shareholder pressure. Um, yes, but in, in general, I think we've talked we've talked a, a, a few times, either on this podcast or offline, just in you know the shareholder expectation for next quarter's results. Right, um, drives. Is, it's a very powerful sort of sort of mover. Actually, no, we did spend a lot of time talking about Apple specifically and their need for growth and their need for for keeping the stock up, whether not for employee retention and like if nothing else. Mm-hmm. Um, and the problem is that like if you have something like the next the next item that I watch, whatever it might be, 
it takes time. It take it can take years, right. and sometimes those can be can be at odds. Right, and th- the problem is there's an increasingly short term bias on the stock market. People, and there are all kinds of reasons for this. Um, there are pension funds that are getting close to you know like being undercapitalized, and they're they're like desperately trying not to be. Like they don't want it to be this quarter or whatever it might be. But increasingly, it's the case that investors watch like hawks um, the results of, uh, of the next quarter. And if they're not up to scratch, with very few exceptions, there's an immense amount of pressure put on the management of organizations. Look, we pay you to deliver numbers and we check how you're delivering on those numbers on a quarter by quarter basis. And if the numbers aren't looking good, then I'm um, sorry, it's time for you to go. And that starts to seep into organizations, that mentality. Um, and I, I mean, I characterize it in the article as um, asking executives to run a marathon by sprinting every lap. It, it, things like, uh, I mean, we've talked about the iPhone and whatever it is that's next, like they take years and years to develop. It's not something that you can just ship out. Like innovation doesn't happen on a nice quarterly timetable um, to suit investors' needs. And the problem is when investors put pressure on management like this, this it's, it's ironically enough encouraging disruption because the, the easiest way to make money in a hurry is to cut back on research and development, save on costs there. Right, go or straight to, to fit, bottom line. Yeah, or, or like find out ways of, of selling more to your most profitable customers and go up market, which are two of the things that more than anything else are going to lead you to end up being disrupted. Now, what I think is interesting- Yeah, so, 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 so uh, the, the thing I'm a little confused about here sure. is- you one you you describe high frequency trading instead it had nothing to do really with day to day companies because mm. they just hold it for fractions of a second. Right. But now you're talking about these these short term investors that do influence companies. So what like what what's the like is there what's the connection? Well, I think I think they're born that they're not the same thing. Clearly, holding holding stocks for fractions of a second and traditional investors having an increasingly short-term focus are not the same thing. But what I would say is that they're born from the same mentality. They are, they are, to to crudely characterize it, they represent, there there are two, there are two points of view of, of the world. There's, I think, again, what folks listening uh, right now, uh, things things that we're interested in, which is like, you know, you build companies by building products and building great services. And then there's another point of the view of the world, which is the more finance oriented view of the world, which is like, like the focus is on profitability. And I think what's interesting about high frequency trading is it's the logical. It, this is this is the short term investing, increasingly profit focused attitude run to its logical extension these guys are trading stocks in it, it finances completely abstracted itself at this point from the real world like they're trading stocks and making money with no reference or barely any reference whatsoever to the underlying fundamentals of the stock and you have some of the smartest minds on on wall street figuring out how to make money we just purely on trading not even trading based on on how the stock is performing but as the more volatility there is in the stock as soon as the stock is being bought or being sold 
any opportunity to make money completely independent of whether the company is doing well or not. And what's interesting is that that's what I think this short-term this short-term focus is increasingly like they're, they're representative of the same thing. So and I, it troubles me. So if we have a gradient, on one side we have totally product-focused, like uh-huh. ignoring profit, um, which arguably you know there's a certain definitely a lot of people that can fall into that, right? right. Um, on the other hand, there's pure profit focus. Like I don't care how I get it. If I get it by capturing a 0.02 spread, that's yeah. that's perfect. And and so those are the two extremes. And mm. if I hear you, what you're arguing is uh, t- lots of Wall Street investors are – they're clearly somewhere in the middle. They're not not—they're not like high-frequency traders who don't really even know right. what the stocks are they're doing. Um, but they're also not focused on product because they, they care about profitability. Um, what you're arguing is they're actually much closer to the high-frequency guys than they are to the product guys. And increasingly becoming more so. And I mean – to step back again, like looking at this from a societal point of view, it's it's hard building things, right? It's like I, I think people people listening would get that sense from the nature of our discussion. We've talked about how long it took to come up with something like the iPhone, but it doesn't need to just be all about Apple. Like creating creating things, creating great things is really hard and it takes time. And the problem is a lot of these public companies, the ultimate like the ultimate boss is the shareholder. And if it takes time to build these things and you need to give executives time to go do it, when you have your boss increasingly only focused on how you're going to deliver value in the next three months, it makes it increasingly hard to be able to do that. And I think we need to find ways of stretching out people's time horizons to get them to start thinking, particularly on the finance side. So here's, like, here's what's interesting. Um, we were gonna, I mean, we were probably going to save this for another week, but I, mean, I wrote about uh, Uber's valuation mm. and and just kind of VC in general. And kind of one thing that's happened in the last 10 to 15 years is the time in which a company goes public has been dramatically pushed out. So it mm. used to be a company go public within like three or four years. They may mm. or may not be turning a profit. Now companies are going public after like eight or nine years. They will often have billions of dollars of revenue or at least hundreds of millions. Um, and if you, it's almost, it, it is almost kind of a response to this, right? It's, it's the venture capital investor or the late stage investor may, may be more institutional. Um, but they are m- more patient money. And maybe it's almost like yeah. what's happened is the public markets um, are only for decaying companies. And any sort of growth and upside um, is now in private money. And the question is like, is that like wh- is that a response to this? Like it's interesting like where where is the what's the yeah. cause and effect here? I mean, I, I do think that, I do think that there are increasingly people taking matters into their own hands about this pressure. I mean, it, it, uh, two tech companies that are examples of, of, again, people taking matters into their own hands, Google and Facebook, both the, the voting stock, the majority of the voting stock, both rests in, bo- in both of those companies, both rests in the hands of the founders. So shareholders can come along for the ride, but they have no ability to influence management. They can't vote out the founders. Yeah. Um, I think I think your observation about VC extending out the period of time before um, 
before a stock gets listed is probably another example of this. But these feel like nasty hacks as opposed to this being like a deeper societal issue that we need to think about. And right, no, the problem those, is like the average person can no longer invest in growth, basically. Right. I, I, like the only way that I can invest yeah. in growth is by investing in like a Fidelity mutual fund that, 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 you know, like Fidelity actually led the, the recent Uber round. Like, so, but I as an individual investor can no longer say, you know, wow, I'm excited about Uber's prospects. I want to get in on that because whenever they make it to the market, probably most of their, a lot of their growth is going to have already been, been realized. Right. I mean, so. This is interesting. You see the problem from the perspective of the individual investor. I see the problem from the perspective of people inside these companies who are trying to build things and how the public, the pressures that the public markets are putting on them are increasingly causing them to uh, increasingly causing them to not be able to build great things. Um, and there are very few exceptions to that. Well, like there are there are some visionary founders that are able to withhold the pressure. But it's typically not much more than that. This is something we should come back to because uh, I think we've we've kind of de- now touched it a couple times in this podcast, and that is the this kind of nasty hack, as you put it, uh, works for your first product, right? Right. It, you, you like extending out your runway, um, yeah. waiting to go public, gives you space to build out your product, uh, where where what it doesn't do is for your second product because now you're already under the gun. You have mm-hmm. margins to protect. You have a market to protect. And I think it does come back to the bigger issue. Um, would we be better off if companies, if the kind of the expectations that companies were built around single products as opposed to the kind of current expectation that companies ought to come up with, you know, new products to replace old products and that companies ought to last forever? Like, should would we be better off if the expectation were that companies should be tied to the lifespan of a product um, whereas right now the expectation well, is separate. I mean, if you believe that, then you then, for instance, you wouldn't have Apple being able to integrate the Mac, the iPhone, and the iPad. No, uh, and that's... I think I think I think we'd be at a loss for that. I think this is not this is a societal. I mean, my like I, I have a, I, and I think you share this point of view too. Like I think about these things systemically, and this feels like a systemic problem that needs a systemic solution. And if you want to get, if you want to get investors starting to focus on the long, I mean, I, I, I kind of have a proposed solution, and this was one of the things that a bunch of us talked about while I was working at the Forum for Growth and Innovation with Clay at HBS. And this is, this is. It has to do with the way the tax system works. Now, right now, uh, capital gains, uh, there is a long-term and a short-term capital gains step function, but it happens at one year. It's like if you if you hold a stock for 364 days and 23 hours or less, then you get taxed at income rates. If you hold it for a year or longer, you get a preferential treatment where you drop that, where, where that rate drops. Right, I think- yeah, exactly. Now, I think that shouldn't be a single step function at a year. I think that should be that should be a curve that asymptotically approaches a much lower number. But if you hold a stock for a second, you should be taxed at something like ninety nine percent. Like, if if you believe that it's impossible to create real value over the course of a second, that that everything everything important, everything valuable takes time to create. You want investors thinking about that exactly the same way. You want them thinking about 
a 10-year time horizon as opposed to what's happening next quarter. So the way to, to get them not focused on next quarter is to tax next quarter's profits. But if they're willing to hold a stock for an extended period of time, if they're willing to encourage management to create things, I mean, it, it speaks to that quote. Um, it, it's, um, you know, in the short run, the stock market is a voting machine, but in the long run, it's a weighing machine. Society benefits when investors and management are focused on making it a weighing machine, not a voting machine. I think we need to change the way, like I think at least one one solution might be to change the capital gains system to encourage people to think more like that. So um, I trust whatever you just said is really good because Skype cut out for like uh, most most of that. No, um, but uh, but but so on that note, since I now have nothing to, I have no response because I have no idea what you just said. Um, <laughs> we, we can save that for next time. Um, okay. So uh, yeah, well, we we kind of were a bit. It, I, I think there was was some symmetry here because um, the 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 Apple Apple is is the standard one for um, kind of long-term thinking and two also for kind of companies having second acts and that being good for, good for society. Yeah. Um, good for everybody. Yeah. It's some, definitely something to think, think more about. Um, in the meantime, we will have uh, your article about, uh, about flash boys in the notes along with some of the other stuff. And uh, we will, we should be on, we'll be on next week. So sorry about the one week break. We probably, we, we kind of knew it was going to happen. Probably should have announced it, but um, yeah. Yeah. Well, it's kind of okay. Sorry, I'll apologize as well. It's as much my fault as it is yours. No, it's fine. Um, And yeah, I guess I will talk to you next week then. Sounds good. Good chatting to you. All right, later. See ya.